Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So one of the things that people say is they say sometimes that clothes make the man. Um, and uh, when I read this, this past week or so, an article, there's an online men's clothing thing that I shop from, and they do an email every once in a while. They had an article, and it was about blazers, because guess what they were selling? Yeah, blazers. But the article was really interesting, and the author says, uh, once upon a time, I was an assistant to a literary agent. Let's call him Arthur. He, uh, he was dashing and charming, and as it turns out, completely unhinged. After he bankrupted the company, went missing for weeks, then got dragged out of a fancy hotel room and committed to Bellevue, we had questions. I'm sure they did. Among them, how did he get away with it for so long? The answer, he wore a really, really nice blue blazer. In the three years I worked for Arthur, I rarely saw him without a blazer. He wore it to lunches with editors and authors. He wore it on the bus. He wore it while he got his hair cut. He was handsome, if a little cruel looking, and the blazer made him seem waspy and dissolute, the perfect persona for a literary agent. The author goes on, he says, Arthur's blazer also hid what should have been in plain sight. When he put it on, he no longer looked hungover. Instead, he looked charmingly rumpled. When he met strange people for unexpected, unexpected errands on the sidewalk outside the office, he looked upstanding, not creepy. When he shoved, stuffed cash into his pockets, it seemed more absent-minded than desperate. He concluded the article, he said, brought into existence in 1825 by rowing team at St. John's College, Cambridge, blazers have become something magic. They can hide a multitude of sins, or celebrate your greatest virtues, demand respect or show humility, signal kinship or fortify your defenses. And I thought that was interesting because why is it that a blue blazer would do that, would, would hide that kind of stuff? And the reason is because we are just able to see the outside of the person. We have to look at somebody and kind of make snap decisions. What is, is this person trustworthy? Worthy? Are they a threat? Um, am I going to be safe around them? Should I be on guard? And the blue blazer is just one of those signals that says, hey, I'm an upstanding, respectable person. So it hid everything that was going on with this guy. Had they been able to see the inside, they would have never trusted him. He was a nut job to begin with and, and had all kinds of other problems. Uh, he bankrupted the company. That's pretty bad. So that's our problem is we can only look on the external parts of a person. We, we decide from that. And, and it really can have a big influence on what we think about somebody. We'll interpret their actions in light of what we already think of them. And that's what he said is you'd look at him and he would, he would be hung over, but you would assume, oh, he's just disheveled in kind of a charming way. No, he's hung over. That's not a good thing. But the, the blazer kind of tilted you in that direction. So what we're going to see this morning as we look at this anointing of David is, is God doesn't look at things that way. He looks at the heart of the person, and that's actually both terrifying and great news at the same time. So let's go ahead and take a look at our text this morning. It starts with, uh, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? We need some context here. Um, we're in kind of in the middle of the story. The book of 1 Samuel is about the rise of the king of Israel. It's about the establishment of that office of king. 
Um, the way I interpret 1 Samuel is Judges is kind of an introduction to it. And so Judges is this period after they've settled in the promised land. Now God would raise people up to judge Israel. And, and they would judge like we would think of a judge, you know, banging a gavel and, and making decisions. But also the judge would lead them in, in combat if they needed to defeat an enemy or, or uh, scare somebody off. And so this time of Judges, if you read the book, just kind of starts okay and just goes downhill. Until at the end of the book, we wind up with Sodom and Gomorrah in the Promised Land and the tribe of Benjamin almost wiped out because of it. And that last, probably about a fifth of the book, there's a refrain that comes up over and over again. There was no king in Israel. And almost every time it's followed by the phrase, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So as you're going through the book of Judges, by the time you get to the end, you're going, we need help. This place is a wreck. We need a king. So when we get to 1 Samuel, we're introduced to uh, Samuel, and this starts off with the end of the judges. Eli, who is the high priest, he's a judge over Israel for a while. And then Samuel is raised up, and Eli and his sons are killed, and Samuel is a judge over Israel for a while. He's also a prophet. But when Israel looked at their future, when they kind of looked down the road, they said things were okay with Eli. His sons were terrible. And Samuel, you've been great, but your sons are absolute putzes. We don't want them. So what are we going to do? What's our future look like politically? We need a king. And so when they say we need a king, their, response, their, their definition of a king is we need a king like the nations. We want to be like the nations. And so Samuel is really mad about that. And God says, no, don't worry about it. They haven't rejected you from being king. They've rejected me. So let's give them a king. And so that's who Saul is. Saul is this king who is raised up. Now, Samuel is, the relationship with Saul and Samuel is, is a little complicated. Samuel, I think, sees himself as a mentor, as maybe a father figure to Saul. Um, it seems like it's all conflict, but, but he here begins by saying, uh, how long will you grieve over Saul? Well, that's how the last chapter ended, was he was grieving over Saul. He's not mad that, that Saul exists. He's, he's disappointed that Saul has messed up so bad. So he says, how long are you going to grieve over him? This isn't the king I decided I want. This is the king for the people. We're going to do something different now. I'm going to send you to Jesse of Bethlehem, and you're going to pick a king for me, not for them, but for me. And so that's where we're at in the story. How long will you grieve? I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I've provided for myself a king among his sons. So that's where he goes. He's got this ram's horn filled with oil. It's got a nice little cap on it, and he's going to pour the oil on, um, on this son of Jesse, who we haven't met yet. Uh, that was what it meant to be king, was to be the anointed. And that's where we get the word for Messiah or Christ is the anointed one. And so that idea of the king is, or the, the Messiah is actually a kingly office. You see that at the end of Jesus' life when they're trying to get him on trial, they trot him out before Pilate and say, this man claims to be the Christ, a king. Therefore, he's a threat to Pilate and you better do something about it. So that's what it means when we say Christ or Messiah is the king. So he says, go and do this. Fill this horn with oil and go do what I tell you with the sons of Jesse. Verse 2, Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. He, he knows that he's got a problem. If it gets back to Saul that I'm going to anoint the next king of Israel, he's going to kill me. Now, doesn't that show a complex relationship between these two men? 
Samuel is grieving over Saul that he's, he's been deposed, that he's, God has rejected him. And yet at the same time, he goes, but he's going to kill me. So it's, it's a very complex relationship, and it just keeps going through the rest of the book in this kind of, um, Saul is just an interesting character. And so God says, take a heifer and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. So in the military, that would be called OPSEC, Operation Security. And whenever you're doing a big operation, there's a lot of people moving around, people where they shouldn't be, equipment moving around. And so we have to practice something called OPSEC, Operation Security. Um, for example, the F-117 fighter, the stealth fighter, I've heard it called the Air Force's worst kept secret. Dude, it was the best kept secret. That thing flew for years before anybody knew about it. And they had OPSEC. What they did is they had a couple of A-7s. These are uh, Vietnam-era attack aircraft. And they painted them black, and they put this special pod on the side. And so whenever the F-117s went someplace, these A-7s would fly in first. And so if anybody asked, why are we securing this area? Why are you here? Oh, I'm here with the A-7s. What you didn't know is in the hangar right behind it, it was filled with F-117s that you couldn't see. That's operation security. So you're not lying but you're not telling everything. And that's exactly what God does for Samuel here. He says, take a heifer and go and say you're going to offer a sacrifice. There's your operation security. Nobody will know what's going on. You and I know what, we, what you're there for, but um, we won't tell them until the last minute. So he takes the heifer and he goes, and um, he tells, uh, God tells him, you shall anoint for me whom I declare to you. And so Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. That little phrase in verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded. If, if you read chapter 15 and you get to that verse, it rings in your ears. Because what had just happened with uh, Saul is God told Saul, go and wipe out the Amalekites. Dedicate them to destruction. Nothing comes out of that city alive. Nothing comes out of that city. You don't take any loot. Everything is destroyed. And so Saul gathers the army, and he goes and wipes out the Amalekites. It's great. But he didn't do what the Lord commanded. He didn't obey the Lord because he kept the livestock alive, and he hung on to the king. And so when we get to this, and it says, Saul did what the Lord commanded, it's like it reminds you, why has, or Samuel did what the Lord has commanded. It reminds you again, why was Saul rejected? Because he didn't do that. He didn't do that. And that's going to be important when we get to who God picks to replace him. So the elders of the city of um, uh, Bethlehem come and meet him trembling. And they say, do you come peaceably? So Samuel used to travel around uh, Israel, and he would come and he would judge the different areas. But when he comes to Bethlehem, they're terrified. What are you here for? Is this bad news? Are you representing Saul? Are we in trouble? If you got a bad word for us from God, there's just this worry about what is this guy here for? So have you come peaceably? And uh, Samuel responds peaceably, shalom. I come in peace, it's okay. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. So he tells them to consecrate themselves. I think that's really a wonderful old covenant kind of thing because what he means by consecrate yourselves is not get ready, we're going to sacrifice in a couple of minutes. It'll be a couple of days before they do the sacrifice. He's telling them, become ceremonially clean. Don't touch anything dead. Don't have sexual intercourse. Don't do these other things that will make you temporarily unclean. In a couple of days, we're going to do this sacrifice. Plan ahead to be at the sacrifice and be ready. Now, in the new covenant, Jesus has made us clean. 
he went to Peter to wash his feet, and Peter said, oh, not, don't wash my feet, I'll wash yours. And he says, if, you don't, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Well, then wash all of me, head to toe. And he says, you're already clean. So Jesus has made us clean. We don't have those kind of those rituals that we have to worry about. But wouldn't it be something if you really had to plan ahead to come and worship? We can just kind of show up on a Sunday morning, you know, and, and um, I forgot this or I'm not ready or, you know, I didn't uh, stay up late last night or something. But the old covenant, you had to plan ahead for these things. When you had a Sabbath where you couldn't cook, you had to plan ahead for that day. I just think it'd be wonderful if, if that was kind of how we approached worship too is consecrate yourselves. Be ready. We're going to do something significant. So that's what he means to them when he says, consecrate yourselves is be ceremonially clean, be pure, be ready to come, and we're going to offer a sacrifice. And then the next sentence seems to completely contradict what I just said. He says, and he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the, to the sacrifice. So if he tells them, consecrate yourselves, how can he consecrate Jesse? Did he come and wave his hands and say some words or something? I don't think that's what the, the context means here. I think consecrate means to set aside, to make holy. And so he consecrates Jesse and his sons by saying, setting them aside specially. He invites all of Bethlehem, but he specifically says, Jesse and the boys, you guys come. So that's what he means by he consecrated them and invited them to the sacrifice. So they're ready to go. It's, it's the day of the sacrifice, verse 6. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So he, he sees the first one out of the chute. This has got to be it. I bet he was wearing a blue blazer. You want to bet? I think he was. He looks at this guy, and what God tells him, is he says, don't look on his appearance or the height of his stature. So the first guy comes up, just look in the roll. He's handsome. He's tall. He's, he's got a blue blazer on. This must be the king of Israel. Samuel is just doing what we do. We can only look at the external and make a judgment on that. And so he looks at him and he says, "This surely the Lord's anointed must be before him. He recognizes this isn't about me. This is about the Lord picking his anointed. The Lord's anointed must be standing before him now. This has got to be the guy. That was a quick trip. I got the first one. But the Lord speaks. And he says, don't look on the appearance of the hider of stature because I have rejected him. Now, what is this whole chapter about? It's about this verse. And you can tell because whenever God speaks, that's, the important, that's what the verse is about. That's what the section is about. God is speaking. This is called direct speech where it is not God speaking through somebody, but God directly speaking to Samuel. And you can tell this is the important part because what he said before is he's giving directions. Do this, don't do that. Uh, go here, don't do that. What he does here is what's called didactic. It's teaching. He's about to tell him something about himself. So if you want to know what the first half of chapter 16 is about, we have arrived. It is about the Lord. That's the important part of this. We tend to think of this as David's anointing. Did you notice David doesn't say a word and shows up at the very last moment and doesn't do anything? It's not about David. This section is primarily, chiefly about God. And so he's going to teach us something very important about himself. He says, don't look on the appearance of, or the height of his statue because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So whatever it is that he sees in Saul, it's not the externals. He's looking at Saul's heart. He's saying there's something about Saul's heart that I have rejected. That's, that's not lining up with what I want. As a matter of fact, in chapter 15, when he rejected Saul the second time, that's the second time he did it. 
he said, I have rejected Saul. I have sought a man after my own heart. So the Lord doesn't look at the externals. He looks at the heart of the person. And when he looks at Saul, he says, there's something here that I'm rejecting. When he looks at David, he says, here's something here that I want. Something that, that's going to work for me. Something that's going to be in line with what I'm looking for. And so this is the really important part of the story is the Lord looks, the Lord sees. You can get that just from the English, but if you look behind that into the Hebrew a little bit, that word for sees or looks comes up a handful of times in really interesting ways. In verse 1, God says, I have provided. That word in, in the Hebrew is actually, I have seen too. It's the same, same word as the Lord sees. And then here in verse 6, he looked. Samuel, Samuel looked at. And his appearance, his, how you see him, um, the Lord sees, not as man sees. So that's all there. In verse 12, when David shows up, uh, David was handsome. He was good to look at. It's the same word. And then the next section, which we're not going to do today, is 17 and 18. Saul says, provide for me a man who can play well. See to me a man who can play well. And a young man says, I have seen the son of Jesse. So this idea of seeing, of looking is central to this whole thing. And the point is God sees the heart. So even without understanding the Hebrew, you know, I just wanted to give you a little peek behind the curtain there. You can still get the idea. You still see what's happening. Um, and so here's, here's the thing. What is, what is it about God's heart that Saul didn't have, but David did? And, and that gets to the question of why did God create anything? Why did he create the universe? God has eternally existed as three divine persons in loving relationship. And so God has always had, before anything existed, before time existed, has always had fellowship and friendship and love and admiration and joy. He's always delighted in himself. He didn't create the world because he was bored or lonely. The Trinity didn't get bored or lonely. But what did they do? Why would they decide they're going to create the universe? Because they were so filled with the joy, the perfection, the glory of who each person in the Trinity was, how the three persons in the Trinity are God and what glorious things that is. And there's so much to be said and so much to explore about that. The joy, the glory, the, the praise poured out into a creation so that God could create beings to share it with. Not out of a deficiency, but out of an excess, an overflow. And so why did God create the universe? To share who he was, his glory, his majesty, how wonderful he is. You are built to delight in that. And so this is God's heart. This is what he wants. When we look at Saul, what did he do? Saul has a pretty bad track record up to this point. When, when Samuel first called him, um, there's a couple of times, and then finally he steps up and he acts like a king. Um, the Ammonites invaded Jabesh-Gilead. And the word gets to Saul, and Saul finally steps up as the king, and he's really mad, and he leads the nation, and they go beat up the Ammonites and deliver Jabesh-Gilead. And it's wonderful, and he does a great job. As a matter of fact, at the end of that, some men came and said, who, who said we don't want Saul to rule over us? Bring him out here, and we'll kill him. And Saul says, no, man. No, there's, we're not, nobody's dying today. The Lord has given us great deliverance. And you're going, great, this is going to be a wonderful king. And then the Philistines invade. The Philistines are going to be a real problem for Israel through this. The Philistines invade. And what happens, one of the events is Saul is sitting under a tree. His son Jonathan steps up and goes, hey, God can deliver with many or with few. Let's go attack these guys. And so him and his armor bearer go attack and put them to flight. The Philistines are taking off. And then suddenly Saul wakes up and goes, let's go avenge my name. 
<laughs> what have you been doing? And then last chapter, like I was telling you, the, the uh, Amalekites go wipe them out. So he gathers the army and they go and they attack the Amalekites and they wipe them out. And the word gets back to Samuel and Samuel goes to check it out. What happened? He gets to the site and he finds somebody says, hey, where's Saul? And he went, well, he built a monument to himself and then he went home. And so when, when Samuel catches up with him in, uh, at home in Gibeah, Saul says, hey, I did what the Lord told me. And Samuel's response is, then why do I hear all this livestock? What is going on? What were you told to do? Oh, well, you know, the people, they wanted to get the best and offer it to the Lord. Very religious of him. And by the way, why is the king still alive? And what I think is going on here is, I, I think Saul may have given in to the people and said, yeah, we'll keep the livestock, we'll offer it to, to the Lord. It wasn't like they burned up all the livestock when they offered them. They would burn up part of it, they would give part to the priest, and then they have a big feast. But the thing with the king is what really tips your hat on this. Why would he keep the king alive? Well, in Judges, they capture one king and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And his response is, hey, I had seven kings under my table with missing toes and big thumbs, or big toes and thumbs. To have a king captured underneath you gave you a sense of importance. I have defeated these kings. So I think what's going on with Saul is he started out wanting to establish the role of the king of Israel. This is a new office. Nobody had done this before. And so he's trying to establish that, trying to get it set up. But I think he eventually began to blend the king of Israel with himself. And it became more about him than it was the office. Now, you see that happen with Richard Nixon. Nixon was very jealous for the office of president. He, he held it in high regard. He thought it was very uh, um, uh, important role in America. But after a while, he began to blend the two. And so he had a list of enemies of the president. Not enemies of Richard Nixon, enemies of the president. And then eventually got to the point where he thought he was above the law and authorized Watergate. This is what Saul is doing, is he is elevating himself because he's equated the office. He's not serving as king. He is the king. And so that's what's happened. When the Lord looks on Saul, what does he see a heart inclined toward? He sees a heart inclined towards his own glory, his own importance. I built a monument to myself. Hoo-ha. When he looks at David, which, who we haven't met yet, and we're not going to get anything about him, but we know from the rest of the book what he's like. He wrote the Psalms. Do the Psalms talk about how wonderful David is? They, they sing God's praise. David's heart, even at this point, as this young man, not filled with the Holy Spirit, is inclined to praise God, to recognize who God is. And so what God does is he looks at that heart and he says, that's a heart I can work with. Now, David's not perfect. And we're going to get to the point where he messes up. But he's still inclined in that direction. And so that'll be important when we get to the end and we begin to apply this to ourselves. So this is what God is going to do. He's going to, he's going to anoint one who doesn't look necessarily great on the outside. Or does he? Well, well, we'll see when we get there. But the important part is there's something in David's heart that agrees with God. And so here's what he says. Um, Jesse, uh, Saul, or Samuel says, this must be the Lord's. God says, I don't see the way you do. That's not him. I have rejected him. So the next son comes up. That's not him. The next one comes up. That's not him. Goes through seven sons, and that's not him. Saul, Samuel must have been really confused at that point. God said it would be one of his sons. 
And we've gone through seven. So he turns to Jesse and he says, is this all? Are these all of your sons? Uh, well, there's the youngest, but he's, he's out keeping sheep. Now, I think what, what Jesse was thinking is, this is adult business. This is for grown-ups. We're not going to have little kids show up here. This is going to mess this up. So, David, you just stay out with the sheep. We'll get The adults will come out here. I don't think he was dissing David or anything. He just didn't think he was old enough to participate. So he leaves him in the, out in the field, and Jesse sa- or Samuel says, go get him because we're not going to sit down until he's here. What he means by sit down is the sacrifice and the feast doesn't start until the youngest is here. So go send for him. So they sent for him and they brought him, verse 12. Now he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. So what does he mean by ruddy? Well, the word has to do with being red. So one theory is maybe he had red hair or reddish hair. Uh, Maybe his cheeks were flush with youth, kind of red, you know, the the flush of youth in his face. There was something about him that, that had that redness, that freshness about him. But he also had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. He was good to look upon. So... This can't be it, right? Didn't we just say God doesn't look at the outside? This can't be it. It is. This is the guy. Um, God says, arise and anoint him, for this is he. So it's important to remember, when God says, I don't look on the outside, he means I don't look on the outside, which doesn't mean ugly people are in, good-looking people are out. I'm glad that ugly people are in, (laughs) because that means I made it. But the point is, Being good-looking doesn't disqualify you either, does it? God honestly, literally, does not look on the outside. So when I see um, uh, celebrities go testify before Congress, often I will snicker because you play somebody smart in TV, in a movie. You you play an important person. Doesn't necessarily mean you are. So like there, some people are you know well-educated actors. Um, Gina Davis is uh, got a PhD. Uh, There's a couple others that are well-educated, but some of these other guys, they're they're like, you just play somebody smart on TV and you have a lot of money. So why are you testifying before Congress? Because we're looking at the externals. Leonardo DiCaprio is a handsome guy and he plays somebody really important. He must be worth listening to. But he doesn't know anything. He doesn't know any more than anybody else. So when God doesn't look on the outside, he's blowing past the celebrity. He's looking at the heart and what's going on in the heart. So arise and anoint him. So, verse 13, Samuel took the horn with the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Now, what comes next is they're going to kind of diss David when he starts showing up, when he starts being more in the story. So, I think what happened was I think Samuel just poured the oil on his head and didn't announce it to anybody, what it meant. So, they're like, okay, that was weird. Um, And the reason I say that is because the way that Saul was called into the office, when Samuel anointed him. It was private. He waited till, Samuel, till Saul's servant took off. They did it in, in private. And it was a quiet kind of ceremony. So later they have a ceremony to announce to all of Israel, here's your king, and they cast lots, and it falls to Saul. Saul already knew he'd been anointed to be king, but it, it hadn't come to fruition yet. So I think a similar thing has happened here is God has anointed David, but hasn't announced it to anybody yet. There's some other things that have to happen. And actually, I think that plays in with why why Saul? Have you ever wondered that? If they wanted a king, why did we get Saul for this period of time? Why not just jump right to David? Because it wasn't wrong for Israel to want a king. In Deuteronomy 16, Moses said, when you go to the land and you appoint for yourself a king, here's what you're going to do. Here's what your king will be like. 
So it wasn't wrong to want a king. The problem was we want a king like the nations. We want to be like the nations. And by the way, we want it now. So just a theory, but David was still too young at that point to be king. God knew David would be eventually the right person, knew his heart, was ready to call him, but wasn't ready to put him on the throne yet. And so I think he gives them Saul as kind of an interim. And he's teaching them something. He's teaching them, you want a king. Here's a bad king. Now, what is that training your heart to want? Well, I don't want that. I want this. And so he's leading them so that when David comes to the throne, they go, that's the king we were looking for. That's kind of our experience. This isn't the king I want. We're waiting for Jesus to return. We want him. That's the king we're looking for. And so God is kind of using that to train us to, to, to hone our hearts. And so they anoint, he anoints him. And then the great news is, it says, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, not temporarily like he would do with judges, but he rushed upon David from that day forward. Even Saul, the spirit of the Lord was upon him, but he departed. And so this is the, the great news. And then Samuel rose and went back home to Ramah. So here's, here's where this goes. One of the things I've been telling my congregation is when we look at Old Testament narrative, one of the questions that comes up is, where do we fit in this narrative? Where, where are we in this story? So I kept insisting, you don't look and go, uh, be like Jonathan, don't be like Saul. Well, yeah, do that. I mean, that's, that's right. But we're not Jonathan. Anybody in this room, the, the uh, firstborn son of the king of Israel? No. We're not Saul. We're not the first king in Israel either. So who are we in this story? We're Israel. We're the ones hiding in holes, needing to be delivered by the, greater, by the, the king's son. So in this one, are we David? Well, kind of, but not really. David is a unique person. But what we're learning here, remember what I said, we're learning not about David. We're learning about God. That's what this story is about. It's teaching us something very important about God, about how God does things. God looks on the inside. He sees the heart, and he sends his spirit upon people. And that's great news. Now, it's a little bit scary because what that means is God looks on your heart. He knows what's going on inside of you. And that can be a little intimidating because I don't know about you, but every once in a while, creepy things come up. And I'm like, I don't, where did that thought come from? Wicked desires start going, hey, wouldn't that be? No, it wouldn't. That'd be terrible. Where did that come from? Bitterness about somebody. Ah, that person really bugs me. Why? That's just bitter jealousy. Where did that come from? And you never say, you would never say, Lisa is just shocked to hear that those things crop up in my mind and my heart. I mean, she's never heard that before. Because you'd never tell anybody, right? The Lord knows them all. The ones you express, the ones you don't express. And so you're going, ah, I don't want anybody to know that. God knows all of that. He's aware of everything that goes on in your heart. He sees the inside of the person, not the outside. And so that can be scary. That can be really terrifying to be known that thoroughly. Because if you're not known and loved, that's hollow. That's, that's celebrity. That's just, that's not really me. You don't know me. So people come up on the sidewalk and ask for my autograph. You don't know who I am. You, you like that character I played. There's nothing satisfying about that. To be known and not loved is devastating. This person actually knows me and they really don't like me. That's crippling. It's just a terrible place to be, but to be so thoroughly known, 
down to the depths of your heart to be so thoroughly known and loved. That's liberating. And that's what God does. Jesus looks at you and he knows your heart. He knows what's going on inside of you. And he chose you anyway. What freedom. What joy. So when in John chapter 2, uh, the Pharisees are giving Jesus a hard time because they're Pharisees. And what it says is, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and no one needed to bear witness about him for he knew what was in man. So Jesus knows what's in us. He sees beyond our externals. He sees beyond the play that we put on. He knows what our heart is. And yet he loves us. Even with all our flaws, even with all our imperfections, but because he loves us, he doesn't leave us there. He's given us his Holy Spirit. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. So this is great news. He's not saying, I love you, you're wonderful, uh, go do what you want. He says, I love you, I want to conform you. I want to make you the person you should be, the person who's fit to enjoy the glory of the Lord, the person person who finds that delightful, who wants more of that. And so he sends us his Holy Spirit. He seals us in his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit writes God's law on our hearts. He inclines our hearts towards God's desires. And so when we look at David, we go, here's the king of Israel. David, like I said, was not perfect, was he? He he lusted after Bathsheba. He slept with her. It's possible that he raped her, depending on how you interpret that. And then he killed her husband to cover his tracks. It was horrible. Did he not have the Holy Spirit at that point? He did, but he grieved the Holy Spirit by which he was sealed for the day of redemption. So for us, it's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit whom uh, has sealed us for the day of redemption, but it's better when we don't. We're more in line. We feel better about the way things, this is how it should be when we don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit is leading us that way. What we're told is that we are uh, elect from the foundations of the world to be conformed to the image of his son. So here's King David, imperfect, needing a savior, his greater son, Jesus Christ, comes. Jesus Christ, is he a man after God's own heart? Absolutely. He is totally after God's own heart. And he also looks at us, and he looks on the inside of us, and he sees our heart. He says, what do you want? And then he begins to conform that. He he changes it through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the grace and the peace that he pours out on us. So here's David's greater son being the greater king, being the king that we need. This is the kind of king we need, someone who will work in us and through us and make us into his. And the great news is he conforms us to his image. For example, he's the great king, right? In Revelation 3, he says that we will sit, we'll be a nation of the priests and we'll sit on his throne with him. We'll rule with him because he will have conformed us to his image. We will be fit to rule with him. It's just, it's better than David, certainly better than Saul. This is the king that we need. And so when we look at these things, we have to remember God has always been in charge. The other good news about him seeing the heart of the person and not the externals is when we go to elect a president, all we can look at is the externals. We we can read the statement of what they're going to do. Most of them don't do it. You know, this is my platform and it never happens. But we look at the person, we go, yeah, that's a person I think I want. That's the best we can do. Friends, I got great news for you. God sees the heart of the person. And what we learn from Daniel onward is that God is active in the affairs of man and he puts on the throne whoever he will. 
So we have Joe Biden as president because God wanted him there. God saw his heart. God knew who he was. We had President Trump there because God wanted him there. He knew his heart. He, he put him on the throne. We had Obama. We keep going back through time. That's great news because what it means is God doesn't make a mistake on these things. We don't look and go, oh, man, we got the wrong, we got the wrong governor. God screwed that up. He, he must have snowed him. Uh, um, Newsom must have like, told him a good story or something. Nope, God sees through all of that, sees the heart, and puts on the throne who he wants. The great news is, as frustrating as that can be back and forth, in the end, Jesus is going to return, and he's going to be the one. He's going to rule. We'll have the perfect king. What's going on now is our hearts are being trained to want better by getting worse, by getting sometimes great, sometimes not great. Is Our hearts are being tuned. We're being led toward this is what we want. We want the right king. And so that's what 1 Samuel is about, is getting the right king. Making it through the bad kings, getting to the right one. And what our hearts want, what we're leaning towards, what we should be desiring is more of Jesus. Lord, come. Set foot on this earth. Rule here. Make our resurrection complete. Bring us into your holiness. That's what we want. So that's, that's the lesson that we're supposed to learn from 1 Samuel, is what the right kind of king looks like. What do you want? Where do you want it? And to put your hope and your help in, in Jesus Christ being our king. Now, David doesn't get much press in this, does he? He barely gets named and doesn't do anything except for step on the stage. It's not about David. Now, the rest of the book is going to be a lot about David. We're going to see what God does in and through him, how he's going to use him, where he's going to go. But as far as his introduction, it's very mute. He, he's not the big deal, is he? And I think that reflects who David is, too. I think David would want it that way. Focus on God. Don't focus on me. I think that's, that's where he's going. And so when we look through 1 Samuel, when we understand the, the periods of the kings, and I don't know about you, I'm like in uh, 2 Kings now, I think, just starting 2 Kings, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. You get roller coaster sickness because it's this king came and he did good, and this king was horrible, and he, this king came, and you just get kind of motion sickness after a while. And I think that's what we're supposed to be looking at is we're looking at this story and saying, how could this have been better? What would a, what would a good king look like in this spot? And if we're paying attention, it's going to be Jesus that steps into that and says, this is what a good king looks like.